where are we? Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. I'm very happy because we're almost done with the book of Hebrews. We've started this three months ago, since June, I believe. Yes, we've been on Hebrews since June, and it's been a lot to cover. This is Hebrews part 11 of the teaching. And we're going to end next week, right? I'm not going to be able to do 12 and 13 in one chapter. So there's still going to be Hebrews part 12. And like I said earlier, I I would really appeal, this is not, of course, I'm sure you already know this based on everything we've discussed, but this, this these are teachings that you're going to need to come back to over and over. The next time you want to personally study Hebrews again, you pick it up, you listen, you read, or probably you read first, you listen, however you want to be it. You read, you listen, you review it. Even I myself, I find myself going back to teachings I make on or commentaries I make on the Bible often because it's the same word of God. And even though we grow and we deepen in our knowledge, that framework that we use to understand what the author is trying to say, how do we situate ourselves in the context of the audience? How do we apply it to our lives? those things don't change and so this would be a resource that i believe by god's grace would last and would help rather not last would help your bible study even beyond just now right until journey to the epistles part two of uh, version 2.0 <laughs> anyways so let's let's pray and then we get right into it Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the amazing journey we've had week after week, chapter after chapter, concept and theme after concept and theme. Thank you for all the the lessons we've learned about Moses, about Christ being greater than the angels, being greater than Moses, being greater than the priesthood of Levi, being greater than the his sacrifice, being greater than the sacrifices of bulls and goats, the covenant in gates being greater than the covenant of the law. Thank you because this is what we have come into. We've come into a covenant where our sins are forgiven, where our sins are forgiven once and for all, where we've been we've received the Spirit of God, and hence we can continue in that covenant. Thank you for the peace that comes with that. And Lord, thank you once again for the assurance that regardless of what we might face in this world, be it persecution or doubts or fears, we can trust in the sacrifice of Christ. We can trust in all we have received in your Son because we know it is better than anything else we'll be tempted to turn to. And I pray that even as we study today, we take our final steps in this book. I pray that once again, as it has been from the start, that there is clarity. I pray that there is understanding. I pray that our eyes are open to acknowledge and to apply the truths of your word to our lives, both for everyone here and everyone who would listen to this recording. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So get your Bibles, get your notes. Let us start to round up the book of Hebrews. Today we're looking at Hebrews 12. And as he starts to conclude, of course, it will make sense if you forget everything he has been talking about 
just because we're, we're entering in conclusion. If you remember, even when you're writing narratives, or when you say, do letter writing in secondary school, I really did not like letter writing. I loved article writing, of course, that's what we're still doing till now. But I didn't like letter writing or narrative. I liked article expository essays. I didn't like narratives or letter writing for some reason. Narrative because I don't really like uh, writing stories. Letter writing because there were too many rules to follow. And so you remember when you've written the introductory header or the introduction, how are you? Hope you are healed and hearty. I think I wrote that in every essay, every letter writing I did. Hope you are healed and hearty. And then you write why you are, you state why you're writing in the introduction, and then you go into the body. It's a Calvary greeting. <laughs> and then you 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 go into the main body and you start to elaborate point after point. Then in the conclusion, I didn't I didn't get all these tips. Our teacher only told us Hila Nati. <laughs> I picked my pen from the basket of love. And then in the conclusion, you write in conclusion. I anticipate you it's pretty much a summary of everything you've said in the beginning and the introduction and the the um, as if we do it in the main body. Jesus, grace and peace in the in the introduction and the main body and then you summarize it in the conclusion all that is to say that whenever a person starts to conclude although you would see it slightly different in the in the epistles right because in their conclusion sometimes they are not summarizing they are trying to they are trying to probably give final thoughts and final instructions on what to do so we're going to see that. But at the end of the day, you are still meant to keep in mind all that you've read because it's that same flow of thought that is informing how he intends to conclude in the last portion of the book. I hope that makes sense. And so in Hebrews as a whole, I said it's while we're praying and just to situate your minds once again, the author of the, the, author of the Hebrew letter is writing to Hebrew Christians meaning Jews spread out outside Jerusalem, right? From the context of the letter, we can gather that they are going through severe persecution. Severe persecution. The, one of the closest things you can, you can liken it to, for instance, is the unfortunate persecution that possibly might be increasing for the Christians in Af- Afghanistan. And there might be, in this time, in their lives, a temptation to just go back to Islam right it's something like that so think about how they would be feeling that ah, this persecution let me just stop this christian thing and just identify as a muslim so that i don't i don't suffer or i don't die or christians in persecuted parts of the world where there are even some countries where your religion appears on your id card and so by virtue of identification you can already tell that this one is either a christian a minority christian or in a Muslim like the rest of us. Uh, I, we're looking, a, friend, a few friends and I, we pray for some of these countries and we're looking through the statistics and you see countries where the population of Christians is 0.01. I'm not joking, or 0.1 or 0.5, meaning 99.5% are Muslims. And in those kind of places, once you identify as a Christian, even in your day-to-day life, it starts to impact. You know, here in the U.S. or in Canada, wherever you're listening to this, or in Nigeria, you, everyone can say, "Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, that's fine. Um, as long as you're not you're not 
acting like one. That's when people start to, to get annoyed and they don't like you anymore. But you can identify as whatever you want. In those countries, even just by identifying as a Christian, economically you start to get um, affected. Even your safety is no longer guaranteed just by that statement. And so what you find is that if you make such a commitment, you better, it's, you know when we say be willing to die for your faith, for them it's not it's not someone um, hype that, ah, I am carrying my crack and die for Jesus. No, for them it is very literal. A commitment to follow Jesus involves the possibility of death at any point. Automatically, it has already involved social ridicule, exclusion from a lot of benefits of the community and things like that. So you can imagine the, the kind of fortitude, the kind of conviction and assurance and constant encouragement in the Lord it would take to, to maintain the integrity of your faith in hostile environments like that. And that's very similar to the audience, the writer of Hebrews, is writing to these are people that are being persecuted being there's a lot of pressure to become jews right or something else because the romans don't like them the jews don't like them no one really liked them at that point of course there was the the general old people are nice people they won't steal your stuff right even historically it was recorded that some as christianity grew people would want to have them in their neighborhood so you would want to have Christians as because they won't steal, they are kind, they are gentle. But the, the, the assertion, especially at the beginning, where they say Jesus is our God and our King, in a world where there was emperor, when there was um, the Roman emperor, Caesar, Nero, and all those things, the Romans didn't particularly like them. So for instance, when we read things like in Acts, the men that have turned the world upside down, and we, and we use it to pray, a lot, right? Especially in some of our circles. Ah, let it be our testimony. It wasn't in the way that, oh, they, they, it wasn't a positive statement at that point in time. The people making those statements weren't complimenting them. That you people have to, no, it was an it was a statement of annoyance. You've caused so much trouble. So much trouble. So both the Jews were like, this Christian bunch, what's wrong with these people? They've come to just throw away everything we've known to be Judaism from the start. And then the Roman people too, they're like, what are these Christian people worship? They say we worship only, we worship God. Jesus is our king. We have a kingdom that's not of this world and such statements. And it was, it was a, it was a radical way of thinking at that point. Remember we looked at Philemon when we read the book of Philemon, right? And we talked about slavery, how Onesimus is going to come back and Philemon is not going to do anything. And he calls him his brother. It's unheard of. A Roman slave and his master, brothers. From where? From where? Stuff like that. So the, the way love and community, regardless of status, regardless of gender, regardless of class, um, worship to God, the way it was done, it was, it was offensive to the Greeks, the Romans, to the Jews, everyone. And that's what they mean by they've turned the world upside down, meaning the ideologies are so foreign that it's causing, we can't fit it into our systems. That's what it meant, actually. But the idea there is that it wasn't exactly easy being a Christian at that point in time. I mean, you read even Paul, before he became arguably one of the, the in, um, in terms of labor, 
the one that did the most work as an apostle, he was spearheading the capturing, the imprisonment of Jews, or sorry, of Christians. So it was not an easy life. And sometimes we read the book of Hebrews, and yes, from a theological approach, we can, oh yes, Jesus is greater, oh, the high priest, oh, the covenant. But always try to, first of all, capture the situational context, the environmental and historical context that the audience were in. They were in immense pressure being Christians. And of course, some in the church had already started to say, you know what, this Christian thing, it's enough. I, I can't deal. Let me just go back to Judaism where it's safer for me. Of course, we've looked at First John, we've looked at a few other portions of, of, of the epistles to talk about how Jesus even describes people who they believe but they had no roots. And so when persecution came, they fell away. We've looked at books like First John 2, where it says people um, that fall, these false teachers, they came out of us and they left us, not because they were ever part of us. In fact, them living only proves that they were never there in the first place. But nevertheless, there were people that identified, emphasis on identifying. They identified with the church and in the face of persecution, they said, what? I know do. I'm not doing it. It's too much. It's just too much. Right? And the writer of Hebrews, of course, so that can be for one set of even people that are genuinely saved, loving the Lord, growing. The pressure is still there nonetheless. And so when you read a book like Hebrews, you see him making statements that tries to address all sorts of people in the crowd. So whether it's the strong believer, the book of Hebrews would encourage him that keep going, it is worth it. Whether it's to the genuine believer, but he's weak, he's, he's scared, he's like, ah, I love Jesus, I believe the gospel, but I don't want to die, I don't want to suffer. It's to encourage him that you know what, keep going. Yes, it's going to be painful, but we, you can do it. Remember, And that's exactly what we looked at in Hebrews 11 last week. The whole point of Hebrews 11 was to portray a picture of men and women in the scriptures that maintain the integrity of their faith in spite of testing. In spite of testing. And we looked at it from the positive end. So people like Abraham that ended up receiving Isaac. People like the, is the faithful Israelites, so maybe Joshua and Caleb, that were able to actually make it to the promised land. But we also looked at the not-so-romantic and the lived happily ever after stories, right? People that, in spite of their faith, were sown asunder, sown in half, literally. People that lost children, people that lost properties, people that were killed. So in the place it says that they refused, they were tortured, and they refused to be set free. Meaning there was the opportunity. It says, no, keep punishing us. We're not going to change. It says the world was not worthy of them. And at the end, now it says each and every one of them, both the good, the positive, quote, the positive stories and the not so positive turnouts. It says all died without receiving the promise. Why? It says because God had better things in mind that they should not be perfected without us. So we are at the end of the age. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. He's telling them that you can't do any less than what those people did. Because they didn't even have Christ. They died still anticipating God's plan to save the world. You have seen it. You have tasted of it. All you are waiting for is consummation. 
You can't be faulting now. That's why he starts Hebrews 12 verse 1 the way he does. Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed with such a great cloud of witnesses, people that have lived the life of faith, people that have endured till the end. Amen. So there's that category, people that are believers, in, in that are genuinely believers, but they are, they are weak, they are scared, they are shaking. Hebrews would serve to encourage them. It would serve to tell them, God, stand up. Whatever you are thinking of turning to is in no way better than what you've come into in Christ. There would also be the audience of people that are just identifying. Now, these ones, they could claim to be Christians, right? They could come for the prayer meetings. They could, they could come for the sharing of food at the communion, the Lord's Supper, and things like that. They could do all that. They could say, oh, sing all the hymns. That though it was God, he thought it not robbery to be equal yeah, with God, yet he humbled himself, God has exalted, and all those hymns of um, Christ died according to scripture, was buried according to they, they would sing the songs. They would see people flow in the spirit, and even possibly they would also flow in the things of the spirit. But at no point, just like the rocky soil, have they have they consciously committed in the way that Jesus describes a seed that falls on the good soil. Right, and so now that persecution has come, like, oh boy, it's just food we're here for. <laughs> but it will be, we'll see you later, and stuff like that. There will be those people, and what this book will do would encourage them to take that step and actually commit to the gospel. That's why you see places like, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Or let us hold fast. Let us let us labor to enter into rest. Things like that, where it can mean for the varying audiences, it would mean something slightly different in how they interpret it. So for those people who are just identifying and have not made that 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 commitment that we die here, literally, the book of Hebrews would encourage them that placing faith in Christ would be the greatest and the smartest thing they could ever do. And then maybe there might even be some people that are not even, maybe in quote, first-timers, right? That they are not even Christians yet. They haven't even made any form of commitment, whether external, whether in, whether internal. They are just there. Remember in 1 Corinthians, where Paul was describing the things of the Spirit, in verse 4, he says, If one that is unlearned comes amongst you, will he not say that you are mad? Meaning that there were people who necessarily, they hadn't really identified with the church yet, but maybe because the church met publicly, right? In times they were in the temple, other times they were in houses, but sometimes they were in public places. So anyone could, you just see a nice crowd and you could join and let me just hear what these Christian people have to say. And so it's possible sometimes that this letter might be read and there might be, let's say, guess, your cousin came visiting. And come, 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 let's, let's go to um, James's house. Paul just wrote a letter. Let's go and hear what Paul has to say. So there might be someone there that might not even be Christian, right? The same thing, the book of Hebrews would, end, would, would hopefully would let the person realize, and that's kind of evangelical at that point, that indeed what God has done in Christ is the best thing that anybody can hope to receive from God. And so there's all that, that, that wide spectrum of audiences and the letter of Hebrews is written to address people 
in whatever category, whether you are strong in your faith, whether you've not even come to believe the faith, the letter of Hebrews will resonate with you at every point in time. I'm just saying this so that when we read the book and we're reading certain passages, you are not scared. Ah, so after all I've, I've walked with the Lord, I can fall away. And I said, no, you read what he says in the next verses, but we are convinced of better things. But we are sure that it doesn't apply to you. Things like that. But at the end of the day, the book of Hebrews is written to cater for anyone in that wide and in that wide spectrum, and it is it requires discernment, which I believe we've exercised all through this book to understand how to interpret it at varying points in time. Amen. Amen. That's introduction part one. <laughs> now you see why we never go past one chapter. <laughs> The second thing, just to summarize again, is that from Hebrews 10, I just want you to give us the same way when we started the episode, we say previously on Journey Through Hebrews. <laughs> Basically, what we did in Hebrews 10, we talked about the new covenant, right? And I explained how what would make the new covenant perfect is two things. On Number one, under it, sins must not be counted, meaning that the forgiveness that the new covenant offers takes care of sins forever which we've talked about right again i would appeal to you to listen to hebrews 7 8 9 and 10 or 8 9 10 one of the wherever i shall discuss hebrews chapter 7 to hebrews chapter 10 please listen to it it would tremendously shape your understanding of what it means to be in christ and what forgiveness looks like in christ all these questions about what happens when we sin. Uh, are you now saying we can live how we want? Are you now saying all those funny, funny questions that people like to ask whenever we teach righteousness by faith? It will be answered in those three chapters. I Three episodes, I promise you. But anyways, so in Hebrews 10, it talks about the perfect sacrifice, Jesus being that sacrifice. And as a result, we can come boldly before God, right? He ended Hebrews 10 talking about the fact that what we need now or what they needed right to the audience is endurance that yes we've received and i talked about it, it's it's this concept called already not yet so in a sense we're already saved but not yet we anticipate the coming of christ in a sense we're already holy oh sure um i will you can listen to the teachings two ways Number one, anywhere you listen to podcasts, just check Journey Through the Epistles with Daniel Babalola. You would see it there. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, whatever. Um, the second way is there's a link, uh, bit.ly Epistle Journey. So you could find it there also. Any, any one of them, you would see everything we've talked about so far. In other books as well. But yeah, good question. Thanks for asking. Anyways, um, yes, I was saying, yes, in a way, we're already holy, we're sanctified, we're righteous, but not yet, right? Even in our day-to-day -day experiences, we are growing in sanctification. We are growing to be more like Christ. So in a sense, we are like Christ. We have the same spirit. But in another sense, even in our character and conduct, we are growing to, to, be, to live and to respond and to walk in the spirit more and more. So there's this paradox in Christianity or in the faith where on one hand, or uh, I think it was E.W. Kenyon that will call it the legal and the vital truth. On one hand, 
positionally another phrase is positional and experiential so whichever one already not yet legal vital positional experiential whatever theological word you want to call it it's the same idea that on one hand everything god has done for us in christ is done we've received it in the spirit and we can be as we can we are so confident of it because it is done on the other hand it's not experientially true and so we see believers still growing in their conduct we see that we still anticipate the coming of christ and the glorification of our bodies the only thing is that both go hand in hand and i've explained this every time i've talked about any episode by paul that until we understand in well enough the positional truth we will not be able to to properly apply the experiential implications in our lives let me explain until we understand that our identity is based on what christ has done we'll keep trying to live to 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 thinking that it's through our actions we pleased god thinking that it's through our actions that we stand before that we we are judged in quotes before god thinking we would subconsciously even if you believe righteousness by faith subconsciously you build an attitude of works where if you didn't pray yesterday you would be ashamed to pray today and you're like ah, it shouldn't be the case or if you did something wrong you are you there's that feeling of shame it just shows that you've not properly understood what god has done in christ so that's why whenever you read the epistles especially pauline epistles he spends the few chapters letting you understand properly what depends on christ what you've received simply by believing and then he goes on in the next chapters to now say as a result do this because god loves you love other people because you have been forgiven past tense forgive other people because you have received the holy spirit walk in the spirit it's an implication process so it's important you understand both but know where both of them fit amen and so that's the same thing the hebrew author is doing he's telling them that yes you've received in quotes you've been perfected forever right he quoted that in hebrews 10 that by one sacrifice he has perfected forever them that are what being sanctified being sanctified hebrews 10 14 and then he goes on at the end to now say what you need now in hebrews 10 36 is endurance so that after you've done the will of god you might receive the promise so there's an idea in which even though we have become partakers of the sacrifice of christ we still anticipate the promise we still anticipate even though for instance he talks about we have entered into rest we still anticipate the, the physical, if I should call it that, consummation of that truth, where in, we are in our glorified bodies, free from the temptation of sin, and all of that, once and for all. Once and for all. And so what he is now saying is that what you need now is endurance. What you need now is to hold your faith, because there is now something you are hoping for. And he now goes on into Hebrews 11 to start to use the stories of people in the past to talk about how they also had something they hoped for and they endured. They endured. Of course, when we talk about endurance, you don't endure through good times. You endure through hard times. So if the Bible says endure, it is implicitly telling you that there will be reason to, meaning there will be times that you won't feel like holding on. There will be times where it's harder. There will be times where it's tasking. 
Of course, for many people listening to this podcast, it might not even be in the same way as many of the people that this was written to. For them, this was an, a tangible temptation to throw away their faith altogether. For many of us, we're probably not never reached that point. I've not, I've never been at a point where I am tangibly being persecuted on account of my faith. Yes, I may have gone through social exclusion. Well, okay, you invite me for a party, okay? Or I might not have as much friends, or I might not be able to relate with people as others might, because I don't believe the same things. But nobody has ever put a knife and said, if you don't, I will kill you. <laughs> All right. But the point there is, regardless, whether it's social persecution, whether it's economic, whether it's physical, it's sharp persecution, and there is strength needed to go through it. So I'm not going to play down the the strength regard, required to even stand for Christ in a social media world. It's, it still requires strength, right? There's also the, the idea of maybe you're even trusting, and I, told, I talked about this last week, that when we read the epistles, there's a way in which when we read, we understand the direct context. So if Paul is saying, if God gave us his son, will he not with him freely give us all things? He was not talking about material provision. He was talking about the things he referred to earlier, or aka the glorification of our bodies. However, there is a way that Bible interpretation works in which when you properly understand the, the, the author's intention, as long as it still fits within that boundary, you can apply it even to other areas within the interpretation intended. Let me explain. Here in Hebrews 11, he's talking about holding fast to your faith, meaning the conviction you have about who Jesus is, right? And how people endured and obtained a good testimony. And I said, even though, yes, the direct implication is that in your faith as a believer, there is grounds. We have evidence of people in times past that held fast and went through. And so you as a believer today, even when you are being persecuted for your faith or when there is temptation to leave the faith altogether, you should stand strong. So the direct implication here is the is, is faith and temptation to abandon the faith. However, right? However, we see the, the applied implication. So we see people like Abraham, he was trusting for his son. Yes, ultimately was about the covenant seed, who was Jesus and the salvation of the world, but there was still God, give me a son, Isaac. And so I said that you can apply that, right? So for someone who is trusting God for the fruit of the womb, you can, and God has promised, God has given a word, his word, you can trust him. You can trust him. It still applies. You can read through the stories of people that stood fast. You can read through the story of Abraham and Hannah and Rachel and see that God did come through. Even though, yes, the actual context is salvation through faith in Christ. But even in the material immediate context, it still applies. I hope that makes sense. And so in a place like Romans 8, the same thing. You could also apply it and say, if God could give me his son, would he not take care of my physical needs? It still applies. Even though that's not the direct context in Paul's mind or the direct context by which the author intends to, because it might have been an implied context actually. But even though that's not the direct context of the passage, it still applies because the interpretation is still valid. If God gave us his best in Christ, what is, what is provision? 
that he, he will not then step in to take care of. And we have other portions of scriptures to also validate that. So it's the same thing. If God has promised you that don't worry, you're going to graduate with a good job. And you're like, ah, I'm almost graduating though. How far? You can apply scriptures like Hebrews 11 to trust in the promises of God. Thumbs up if that makes sense. I, I want to be I want to be sure because there's usually the extreme of people just disregarding the actual context of the book and just using it to teach whatever they want. That's bad. Your first point of contact with Romans 8 should not be material provision. However, there's also the other extreme where people just say, it's just this. Never apply it to this. It's not valid. You are wrong and all of that. That's also wrong. Because, if, for instance, if I say, one example I used to give when I, when I wrote a mini book on Bible interpretation, and I said, if I write to my younger brother, all throughout today, I don't want you jumping. It means if if it, that's the that's clear, but he can apply to say, okay, if I'm at school, I shouldn't jump. If I'm at work, if he's working, I shouldn't jump. If I'm in the car, I shouldn't jump. If I'm in the house, I shouldn't jump. The same way, right? You can, as long as the intended meaning is kept in mind, any application within that boundary is also valid. Is also valid. And if the interpretation of Hebrews 10 and 11 is to show that faith in God is never misplaced, then it also goes to show that faith in God, even for natural things, is never misplaced. As long as it is within the boundaries. Of course, scripture is cohesive. I'm not saying you just wake up one morning and say, I have faith in God for a Lamborghini before the end of 2021. What God cannot do does not exist. 2020 is my double year Lamborghini year. <laughs> That's not... I, I believe we, we have taught enough to, to to help you situate what provision means. So, so that's not, I'm not, the Bible is not a fuel for your material greed. So find, if you want that, go and find something else to, to give you that. Go and do network marketing or something. <laughs> With all due respect to network marketers, I was once a network marketer myself. <laughs> Anyways, Hebrews 12. Now we're starting. <laughs> but I hope that was helpful. I, I think the, the introduction was necessary, not just because someone here is joining for the first time, but now that we're entering the conclusion, I want to kind of wrap everything in, uh, in one piece so that we are in the right frame of mind to step in. So hope that makes sense. Any questions yet? Thumbs up if everything I've said makes sense. And now we'll start Hebrews 12. Awesome, 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 awesome. Let's let's start. All right, Hebrews 12, verse 1. I'm reading from the NKJV as usual. Get your Bibles, your notepads, and let us begin. Hebrews, I hope I've been recording. If I'm not recording, I'll just cry. I'll just say, everybody, just go home. <laughs> just go, go. We'll, we'll try again next week. Anyways, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, again, you see, therefore, Never read therefore and just say, ah, therefore, we've started a new chapter. No. Go always, whenever you read therefore, try to sub, to consciously, not subconsciously, reflect on everything we've read going into that point. So therefore would mean in light of all I've just said about all these people of faith in Hebrews 11. It says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. 
And that's not saying that there is somewhere in heaven looking and say, hey, look at him, look at him, that every time you are tempted, everybody in heaven is looking and say, hey, no. <laughs> that's not what cloud of witnesses means, right? It just means we have the testimony of countless, numerous people that have lived a life of faith. We have the testimony of countless, numerous people that have endured till the end, right? So he's saying we are surrounded by their testimonies. We have them in our books. We have them in from Genesis to Malachi. Now we have them in, in the Gospels. We have them in the book of Acts. What he's pretty much saying is that their lives serve as a witness to us. So that at any point, and I, I explained this at length last week, that whenever you are faced with something or a challenge or a temptation, somewhere in your life, you will be able to point to someone who has gone through something similar and came out strong. And I said it's to do two things. Number one, it's to encourage you. It's to encourage you. But number two, it's also going to serve as judgment <laughs> in the sense in which you have no excuse. That's it. Those are the two things. Oh, it's, so you could say it's to encourage or it's to convict you. So for someone who says, oh, you know, I'm busy in my new career. I don't really have time to pray like that. There will be someone who also just got a new job and is even more fervent in spite of his busy schedule or her busy schedule in his or her work with God. And I said that is to either, number one, encourage you or number two, convict you when you feel like your excuses are legitimate. No, the Holy Spirit will say, no, look at this person. Your excuses are not legitimate. And Paul does the same thing in Corinthians. He says, whenever you are faced with a temptation, what are the three things that you should remember? He says, number one, no temptation that has befallen you is for you alone. He says he has befallen every man. <laughs> it's not unique to you. That's the first thing to know when you're in temptation. Think about that. When Paul was giving three, as a did have two heads, literally, that's what the Holy Spirit will be telling you. Look at your brother. You die your sister. She have two heads. Come on, go and pray. Right? The first thing Paul gives you to note whenever you face temptation is number one, it's not just you. It says there are people all around the world that are going through similar or worse. It says number two, God will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able to bear. And I think for me, ever since I first stumbled on this passage, I think it was when I was reading Battlefields of the Mind, I think, by Joyce Meyer. That was 200 level, 2014. That's like seven years ago now. Wow. Well, getting old. <laughs> now I'm saying seven years. Anyways, it, it, it really comforted me. These were scriptures I took to pray every day during that period. That whenever I'm faced with challenges, I should realize that God will never allow me to go through a challenge that I can't, I can't handle. And so it should, re, it should give you a mindset of strength. Many times we think, about like, oh God, how are you allowed? No, God... If, if it happened, God knows you are strong enough to go through it. Think about that. You are strong enough to go through it. You think about, for instance, the people of Israel. As soon as they went out of Egypt, what did it say? It says God led them through the longer route. He didn't allow them to go straight through. The, he says, why? Because they were, not, they were not ready. They were not strong enough. So you, you see that, that even in our, in our work with God, God is conscious of our capacity. And he will never give us more than we're able to bear. So if I feel like it's too much, no, I should change it. it no, it should be like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking it as right. All of us can testify. You look back in your life and you look back at some of the hardest points in your life, and you're like, wow, 
God actually made me stronger than I thought. He he proved that his strength in me was much more than I thought actually. And you you look through those moments and you're like, "Wow, indeed, God did not give me more than I could have handled." He didn't. He didn't. And number 3, what's the third thing Paul says? He says that with every temptation, he says he will make a way of escape so that you are able to bear through it. So those are things to have in mind. It's not just you. And it's ironic because the first thing the devil tries to do when we go through hard times is to make you think it's just you. All of a sudden you you become exclusive like you 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 separate from people because you think they can't understand. You separate from people because you think they won't get it. They've not they probably they can't relate. And the, the Bible says the exact opposite. <laughs> that is not just you. Who told you you are the only one that is struggling to maintain a healthy devotional life? Who told you you are the only one that is struggling to to struggling maybe with sexual temptation? Who told you you are the only one that is struggling to to put up a fake identity in the office so that you 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 get favored even though you know it's not exactly what God would want you to do? Who told you? Who told you you are the only one that is finding it hard to stand for God in school? Who told you? But ironically, the first thing the devil will try to do is to blind us so that all we see is just me in this current situation, nothing else. And if so for instance, let's say you're at a point where it's it, you, you feel so choked up that you can't even see anybody else. That's fine. Take out the time. Even though yes, you're not going to go on social media anything. Take out the time, but make sure you are praying. Don't allow yourself to wallow in that state of it's just me, it's not just you. It's not just you. Amen. I deviated again. <laughs> Where am I? I'm still in verse 1. All right, let me let me pick up the pace. <laughs> let me pick up the pace. I said we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. It says, what is the implication? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run with what endurance the race set before us. A lot to say about this, but let me highlight some of the things that I feel are very important. It says, so what would be the implication of the testimony of others? It says it should motivate you to drop every weight and every besetting sin. Now, I've heard teachings where people say everyone has that besetting sin. For you it might be money, for your brother it might be lust. But make sure you identify that particular besetting. That's 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 not remotely close to what the author of Hebrews is saying. And just a careful read will make it very clear. He says because we're surrounded, he he paints the analogy of a race, right? So you can think about it like you're in a race and all these people, there are all these people that have also won. You can see all their statues, all their pictures, people that have have gone through the same race. And what it should do is motivate you to take off any hindrance that will keep you from running the race. To, to be able to understand what weight and besetting sin will mean, all you have to ask is, what is the race we are running? It's a race of endurance. If you've read in context in Hebrews 1, it's simply a race to keep the faith, right? That's what it is. To hold fast to your faith in the face of tempta- temptation slash persecution. That's all. 
That's the race. And so what will be weight or besetting sin? It would be unbelief or anything that would take you back to the point where you somehow, things like doubt, that you somehow think that, you know what, this Christian thing, I am not doing again. So when he says besetting sins, you can think, again, think about a race, right? It's it's literally, sorry, let me open my Bible. It's, it's the word, I'm not going to, let me pronounce it once and then I'll explain it, right? It's the word hyperistatus in the Greek. And it's the idea of when there's a race, let's say there's a stone or something that will allow you fall down. That's what he's saying. Let's say there's, so for instance, a weight will keep you, it will make it harder to run. But a besetting sin, or it's like a stone on the ground or something, that if you trip on it, you're going to fall. So what he's saying is that because of the testimony of people, be conscious enough to take away anything that will make it harder to live for Christ. Take away anything that will possibly trip you or cause you to fall in this walk. So things like doubt, things like bad um, bad association probably, the idea there is just what? Keep the faith. Make sure that you are always in a frame of mind where you are able to run this race, where you are able to hold fast. He's just using analogies, right? So the same way in a race, I think even then, when gymnastics and things like that started, they were naked. In fact, the word gymnasio, so it's the idea of nakedness from where we call gymnasium and gymnastics and all of that. Why? Because you were to be as free as possible so you can focus on the activity. The same way, then they didn't have all those red and whites that we used to run on, on in Unilag um, racing track. <laughs> it, was, it was just a path and you run. So there could be stones, there could be things on the road that could trip you if you're running. The idea there is just make it... Um, Rather, let me rephrase my thoughts. The idea is simply, because of the testimony of people that have gone ahead of you, simply run in a way that you are not going to trip. Run in a way that you are as light, in quotes, as possible. Because he's using the analogy of a race. AKA, endure, hold fast. Let the testimony of these people motivate you to hold fast in the face of temptation, meaning like, besetting sins and all of that in the face of temptation in the face of persecution in the face of discouragement and all of that that's the idea it says how do we do this looking onto jesus looking onto jesus looking onto jesus the idea that to look is not just just look it's the word aphorao in the greek a-p-h-o-r-a-o and it simply means to consider attentively so to attentively focus on the life of Jesus. It says, the author and finisher of faith. I'm going to get there. Who for the joy set before him, he also did what? He endured. So you, it's, the, it's the same idea of picture Jesus in a race and the prize is there at the end. And it says, because of that prize, he too, he was looking at something. So we are looking to Jesus. Jesus also was looking at it. It says, he, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God. And so what he's pretty much saying here is that Jesus becomes the greatest example of faith. Jesus becomes our prime example when it comes to perseverance and endurance. That because of what was ahead, we too have a thing we're looking for. Remember Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Sorry, this is the sort of things about the evidence of things not seen. 
And so there's a thing that we hope for. For Jesus, it was the joy of salvation. Remember when he says in Isaiah, he says he would look upon his children and he would glory in the works of his hands. So Jesus knew what his, his going to the cross would accomplish. And because of that, he was willing to endure through the cross. He says the same way, we also look forward to what we are, what we are set to receive upon the coming of Christ. And we are able to endure whatever this life throws at us. And at the end of the day, it's a mentality slash spiritual frame of mind in which no persecution becomes too difficult whenever we keep in mind the joy that follows. No temptation becomes too great as long as we keep in mind the joy that follows. No, no suffering, no ordeal, no challenge that the world may throw at us, it becomes too overwhelming as long as we remember there is a promised rest. And so he, that should be your motivation, that I can go through whatever life would throw at me. Why? Because I know that I have rest in Christ. I know that I have a living hope. That's the, that's the idea. In times you're weak, in times you're, 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 you're feeling like, ah, this Christianity, let that ginger you. And sometimes you would need an epistle, right? Because the people he's writing to, many of them are tired. Many of them are scared. Sometimes what you need is a friend to remind you that, you know what, no, our journey is still far. We have already won. Come on, pick yourself up. Big body here. Sometimes you need to read Hebrews again. Sometimes you need that brother, that sister to encourage you. We've looked at that already, where it says that consider one another to stay on to good works. In the, okay, I, I skipped author and finished out. So it says, looking unto Jesus, the author or the captain or the prince and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. In the King James, the word R, O-U-R, is italicized, meaning it's not in the original manuscript. It was only added because the translator spelt it to help with interpretation. I don't think it does, <laughs> right? And I'm not alone on this opinion, but the idea, it doesn't really change much anyway. So if you say he's the author and finisher of faith, he's the author and finisher of faith, you can look at this in two ways. Number one, you look through Hebrews 11, and I explained this last week, so you could listen to that if you haven't. The object of faith, for every single character in the Old Testament was ultimately Christ. So, for instance, you talk about how they pleased God, or you see Abraham trusting for Isaac. We read in Galatians, Paul calls it that he believed the gospel. You see Moses choosing to identify with the people of Israel. In Hebrews 3, we saw it as Moses being faithful in God's house, right? We, we see Rahab believing in the God of the Israelites and she's identified as a person of faith. Why? Because she believed in the God of humanity. We would see people, uh, we would see the stories of, of people who conquered kingdoms, people who stood fast, people who, like Isaiah, maintained faith. What was their faith? They believed in the promised Messiah. They believed that God, through the seed of Abraham, was going to bless the world. That is the gospel. And so it's not, it doesn't change anything that now we're living post-Christ. Even people that lived before Christ, they were counted righteous because they believed in a God, in the God of Israel. And so right from the beginning of time, 
where faith first found its expression. Even in Abel, we saw that in Cain and Abel last week, right? Jesus has always been the author or the object of faith. So in one sense, when it says he's the author and the finisher of faith, it means wherever you see faith expressed since the beginning of time, it ultimately pointed to Christ. And in the other sense as well, it talks about him being the author and finisher of faith as an example. He too, not only was he the, the object of everyone's faith, now he becomes the greatest example in which we see through his life, faith demonstrated and faith perfected. Sums up if that makes sense. I should go over it again. Sums up if that makes sense. <laughs> All right, good, 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 good. Awesome. So that's 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 that that's that. Let's let's go on. He continues in verse three, and he says, "Consider him talking about Jesus, who endured such hostility against sinners." So from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So it's the same idea. Jesus also suffered from sinners. I mean, you look at the Jews, the, the Romans, they slapped him, they spat on him, they put a crown of thorns, they ridiculed him. And it says that, see, Jesus, remember these are people who are going through persecution. It says Jesus has also gone through such, so that you should also not become weary. Your captain of your, the captain of your faith, the captain of your salvation has also gone through similar things to what you're going through now. So don't become discouraged. You are a good follower of Jesus. You are a good follower of Jesus by enduring suffering and persecution just like he did. And I love what he says in verse 4. He says, calm down. You have not yet resisted unto bloodshed, striving against sin. Again, what is sin, right? Falling away. For the pressure to follow. Remember when I read it in Hebrews 10, where it says, if anyone sins willfully. And I said, just read in context. It's simply meaning, if anyone willfully rejects the sacrifice of Christ. The same thing here, where it says, you've not reject, resisted unto bloodshed, striving against sin. Sin here will be falling away. And what it simply says, they've not killed you. <laughs> I mean, the very fact that you can read this letter, it means they've not killed you. you. There are people that they've killed. We read about them in Hebrews 11. Jesus was killed, striving against sin. Some of the people here have lost loved ones. I think a friend of mine in the whole um, killings that were going on in Nigeria, I remember when he told me, I think his grandma and I think her children, they were burnt alive or something for their faith. And that's why he says says that consider, first of all, those people are witnesses, (laughs) right? But then he says, look unto Jesus and let it be a source of encouragement. It says, you've not yet died. That is, they've not killed you. Last class is just you are just you have just they've just cancelled you on social media, they've not cut your neck yet. <laughs> Verse 5 it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. It says, My son, he's quoting the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 3, verse 11 to 12. It says, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Pause. What does he now say? He's using an analogy of parental discipline to teach the believer's response to persecution. I'm going to say this carefully so that you understand. I'll say what I just said again. He's using an analogy of parental discipline 
to teach a believer's response to persecution. So now, when you read analogies, and a mistake people make, generally in, in English, actually, and unfortunately in the Bible, is that we don't know how to read analogies. Sometimes you, we try to stretch it too far. If an analogy is not... If, if When you read an analogy, I believe people like Tiffith can probably help us better. <laughs> you focus on what is being compared. So if, I, if, for instance, if it says, like newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word by which you may grow thereby. It's simply saying, the same way a baby craves for milk is the same way you should, as a believer, desire the word of God. So the idea there is things like sustenance, consistency, and, and exclusivity, right? We can see all that. So a baby takes only milk. The same way as a believer, you shouldn't be influenced by world cultures. You shouldn't be influenced by world systems. You should be influenced by the word alone. A baby needs to take milk regularly because that's his sole form of sustenance. The same way you stay in the word regularly. Finally, a baby also needs, that is, milk for him is sustenance. If he doesn't take it, he would die. It's the same idea. If you don't take it, it's going to affect you negatively. Right? It's going to affect you negatively. And finally, the idea there is desire. A baby always wants it. He's always, when they cry, because they want to be fed milk. The same way, there should be that constant desire to want the word of God. That's the analogy. If you push it to now say, uh, how do you want to, how do you want to, I don't know how you want to extend this. He's not saying you are a baby. He's not saying that you are a baby Christian, that only baby Christians, people say only baby Christians need the milk. You are applying another verse that says something entirely different. That's not the analogy. The analogy is simply saying, consider the baby's desire for a milk and mirror it to your desire for the word. Stay there. Don't start to say, oh, God is a mother who exactly that you should start crying or you, no, no, no. It's the same thing here. And I'm saying this to correct a notion, right? Where he says, he calls the he calls persecution the chastening of the Lord. The idea there, and we're going to see it, is what? What is parental discipline for? Is to help the child grow. If a child was not disciplined, what do we call that child? Spoiled. We would say he'll be what? He'll be wasteful. He won't know how to appreciate things. He'll be... Generally, he'll be a, sp- a, a child who isn't disciplined will be spoilt. It's the same idea. Persecution to the believer does what training does to a child. He's not saying that God is the one sending it. And that's why I'm being careful. Don't, don't extend the analogy further. The same way you won't start teaching that God has breast milk or God has breasts. <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying God sends persecution. He's not saying that... So, for instance, where he says he scourges everyone whom he receives. That every time they are flogging you... Let's say for those... Every flog that Jesus received is God that is flogging him. Ah, just you've been a bad child. He's not saying that you exactly... That's another thing I wanted to say. He's not saying you've done something wrong. And so you are being disciplined. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that the same way a father will correct his child, if same way a father would discipline his child to what end? To the end that he grows, to the end that he becomes better. 
is the same way God allows us go through persecution. Why? Because it makes us better. Now let let let's 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 look at a few things. So for instance, where it says, "Don't despise the chastening of the of the Lord." The word chastening there is the word paideia in the Greek. P a i d e i a. It's the same way where we get the anything pied, right? Pediatrician and all of that. Children. So it's, it it simply means tutoring or training. Tutoring or training or education, right? To train a child. And you see it used many places actually. It's not just when they are, it's not just necessarily flogging. Let's look at a few places where that word is used chastening. So, for instance, we see it in Ephesians 6, verse 4. It says, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That word nurture is the same word chastening. Bring them up in the nurture of the Lord, right? In uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, where we're going to see a lot of, it's the same idea. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The word instruction is the same word by idea. So you see that the word there means just generally it's about training, nurture, instruction, making a child grow. So when it says, don't, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, he's simply saying that through persecution, we also grow. We are formed. We are formed. The other word there that we see there, it says, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. It's the word elenko in the Greek, and it means to, to tell a fault, right? It's the same idea. We see it in 2 Timothy 3.16 also. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. That word reproof is the word elenko. And it's ironic. When you read 2 Timothy 3.16, what is doing the chastening? What is doing the rebuke? It's scripture. Do you see that? It's scripture. God is not punishing. He's not making you, he's not giving you cancer. He's not giving you um, sickness. Ah, you have become too proud. I will give you cancer to humble you. <laughs> right? In 2 Timothy 3.16, what 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 um what instructs us, what corrects us is the word of God. It's the word of God. God trains us through his word. But also, for instance, now we see in Hebrews 12 that also through persecution. And I've talked about this in earlier portions of Hebrews, but I'll just read through a few verses. I won't spend as much time because this is something I've said many times. So for instance, Read 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so here it says that your faith is more, much more precious than gold. And the same way fire refines gold, it makes it valuable, it makes it shine, it proves it is authentic. It's the same way as believers, whenever our faith is tested, what does it do? It proves its authenticity. It, it shows that we are people of substance. And it, it, it ultimately, it, glor it glows, right? It, it, it glorifies God at the end of the day. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 14. It says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, 1 Peter 4, 14, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. 
Do you see that? In 1 Peter 4 verse 14, it says, If any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. That's why you see when Peter and John were flogged in Acts 4, I believe, it says what they left there rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. See that? See that idea? See that kind of perspective? In Romans 5 verse 3, it says, And not only so, but we glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience. That's the training. That's the chastening, the instruction, the bringing up in Christ. It says tribulation works patience. Patience experience, experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed. The same idea. That a believer who goes, who stands in the face of persecution, only gets better. And so when you see God in quote, he's like, God, why are you allowing the Afghan Christians go through this? Read First Peter. Read Romans 5. Read Romans 5. Read James 1. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. He says, let, let it, <laughs> meaning, stay there. Let patience have a perfect work, so that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And I've explained all this already. But the idea there, we see it again in Paul. He says, when I, through the work of the messages, I was given a messenger from where? Satan. Satan. It says, I asked God, take away this stone in my flesh three times. It says that God said what? It says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My strength is made perfect. It says, so I've learned to glory in my weakness. For when, I am, when I'm weak, then the strength of Christ is glorified in me. And all of this, it, 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 it's, it's sad. It's, it honestly breaks my heart that this is not taught as often as it should. And I'm talking about the, the believer and suffering and persecution. And I'm, 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 I'm saying this carefully. I'm saying persecution for faith because that's the context we've read so far. I'm not saying uh, God is giving me cancer to teach me a lesson. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when a believer goes through hard times on account of his faith. I'm not saying uh, that you are lazy at your work and they fire you. I say, count it all joy. You are not okay. <laughs> There's nothing to count joy. You are, you, are, you are a lazy employee. You are a disgrace to the name of Christ. <laughs> I'm talking about when you go through persecution on account of your faith. There is a sense in which, yes, in the sovereignty of God, he could have brought you out of that, that situation. And we see this sometimes, right? We see Paul being delivered many times. We see Peter being literally an angel leading him out, leading him out of prison. We see Paul and Silas walking out of the prison. So yes, there are times where God in his wisdom steps into persecution and intervenes. But there are also other times where God, again, in his sovereign wisdom, and there's an emphasis on his sovereign wisdom, because just like Job, many times we don't see things that way. I would advise, I would encourage everyone to listen to um, the Bible Project on YouTube. They did a series called the Wisdom Books, where they talked about Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And I would like everyone to listen to the, the teaching on Job. It's not a teaching, it's a short, like 10 minutes animation. But it's so profound. Because at the end of the day, when you see all that Job went through, 
and God comes in the final chapters, how did God respond to Job? You would think you say, oh, Job, you have done well. You know, this is what happened. Uh, it's not me, blah, blah, blah. All those explain. God will try and explain himself. What did God do when he met Job? He simply took him on the top of the universe and said, do you think you can run the world with all that I've shown you? All God showed Job was how complex, how many moving pieces. For instance, you don't know what a decision someone did will play on eternity. God does. You don't know what this would do in the script. God does. And so all God told Job at the end of all the 30-something chapters of ranting was simply what? Learn to trust in my wisdom. That was all. That was God's answer. Imagine someone lost his child, all his child, all his seven kids or eight kids, lost all his property. And all God told him at the end of the book was learn to trust in my wisdom. And so it's the same thing. Christians today, sometimes we ask, God, where were you when my dad died? God, why did you allow me to have an accident? And we see it in Paul. I mean, I, I told you that today, if Paul was a modern-day preacher, sometimes we think that this man is not a man of God. Because Paul would say what? You read in, in 2 Corinthians, he says, I was in hunger often, meaning he didn't have food to eat. He says, I was in shipwreck three times. That's both accident. That's accidental. Oh, accident. Imagine if I say, I'm, I'm going to preach. I'm going for a crusade. And on my way, my car crashes. They say, ah, you have not prayed well. The, the witches got you. No. Paul said it three times. I was, down, I was on a shipwreck. I was on the sea for three days and three nights. He said that I was robbed. I'm robber. <laughs> I'm robber. They attacked him. This is Paul. This is Paul. This is Paul. And in all of that, he didn't say, I need to pray more. He didn't say, where was God when they were robbing me? Where was God when my ship? He said, didn't he say, you now go and kneel? Didn't you say in your word that you will keep me lest I dash my feet against the stone? <laughs> no, he didn't, he didn't say any of that. And it's the same thing he said when he, he said that in my weakness, the strength of Christ is glorified. And there's that, there's that mentality. So, for instance, you see it in the early church. I'm not saying whenever anything bad, I will just say it's the will of God. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Please understand. And that's why it's a delicate topic. So, you see in the early church, they arrested Peter. The church prayed. And Peter was delivered. And I tell people, who told you? Because a lot of times we read Acts and we think that that is all that happened. In this, Let me explain. So, for instance, you're reading the book of Acts. And you forget that the... The book of Acts is literally decades of Christian history condensed into one letter. And the same way, if someone asks me, oh, how was your, I just finished my master's. How was your master's? I would pick out certain highlights. I would say, oh, there was this one time. Oh, there was this one time. Does that mean everything in my two years was always full of activity? That, ah, back to back, this happened, then this happened. No, not necessarily. It just means those were the things that stood out. And so, for that's why I'm very careful sometimes when I say every time the church prayed, something happened. In the book of Acts, yes. In the letter, yes. But that's because he's writing events. Who told you the church did not pray for James the way they prayed for Peter? But James was killed. Who told you after Peter was delivered, the church, won't they have even been motivated? Ah, so God prayed, so God delivered Peter. Let's keep praying. 
Who told you they didn't pray for Stephen? Stephen was stoned. Of course they prayed for Stephen. <laughs> of course they prayed for Stephen. Who told you that um, the next time, because Peter was eventually crucified, who told you they weren't praying? Or when Paul, Paul and Silas, so when God delivered him, he has delivered him in a basket. He has sent angels to comfort him. Angels have opened the gates in, in um, Wednesday. Paul and Silas, they prayed. After praying, they sang. But Paul was beheaded at the end of his life. Who told you he didn't pray? Who told you he didn't pray? So the idea there, and I, I, it's the same idea that we see in Hebrews 11. There were some who ended up getting, in quotes, their testimonies, if that makes any sense. I, Abraham got Isaac. Isaac, Isaac, uh, whatever. Um, Rachel got her children, right? Sarah got her son. The Israelites entered the promised land. And other stories, there are many good stories like that. David defeated Goliath. Woo! Daniel came out of the lion's den. The Hebrew boys, they came out of the fiery furnace. Those are good stuff. But there were also other people like Isaiah that were killed. There were people that they died. And it, it, they, they, it says, um, let's, let me even just go back there so that it, it comes from the horse's mouth. It's not... Is not from me. Um, give me a second. That's towards the end of Hebrews. It says that they had a trial of cruel mockings, scourgings. In Hebrews 11, 37, it says they were stoned. They were stoned asunder. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheep's clothing. So there was also that idea that there were some, that it was not exactly the same. Does that mean they had less faith? God forbid. Does that mean God was somehow not faithful? God forbid. But what all of this should do, for instance, the people that are going through persecution now, does that mean they shouldn't pray for the persecution to end? Of course they should. Paul prayed three times. But what, what I'm simply saying is that as believers, we are to get to a point of maturity where every situation we're able to discern, is this something I'm going to go through or something that God is going to bring me out of? There, there should be, there should be that, that humility to trust in the wisdom of God and say, God, in this situation, am I to trust in your goodness? And that's why you're saying, like James, count it all joy. Is this a time for me to know that, yes, I'm growing? I'm growing. Or is this a time for me to, to know that, indeed, this is not this is the work of the devil and, and put an end to it? There should be that discernment. There should be that humility, especially as regards things like the persecution of faith. Now I'm not talking about like sickness and disease. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm focusing specifically on trials of faith. That's what I'm focusing on. And so for instance, it's not every time that putting all we've, we've talked about so far, it's not every time that let's say you lost your job because you were a faithful believer that God is preparing a better one. You might be shocking to you, but it's, it might not be every. It might not be the case. <laughs> it might not be the case. The next one you get might be they might pay you less salary because to be on your record that you were fired. <laughs> but my point is, at the end of the day, if we are to truly remember, kind of like Jesus, who for the joy set before him, the joy set before us is not a better job. The joy set before us is not pleasure on earth. The joy set before us is eternal glory. It's eternal glory. So that is what we keep in our minds. And it is with that mindset that regardless of what this life brings, we're not somehow, God, where were you? All these funny questions. God, why? God, why me? 
I, I love what Bill Johnson said. You're not that special. God cannot just pick you to be mean to. Does it, ah, what did you do? Only you out of seven billion people plus that have even died. God has his view. I want to I want to annoy. I want to just tickle you small. No, it's not like that. And so I'm going to end now. Um I've said a lot that I did not even anticipate. <laughs> and we haven't finished Hebrews 12. Amazing. <laughs> but I I I really hope. I really hope all I'm saying makes sense. I really hope all I'm saying makes sense. Let me see a thumbs up or let me, let me, um, I, you are surprised. What are you surprised about? <laughs> the teaching or, <laughs> but I, I hope, I hope, well, at least, because like I said, it's unfortunate that this is not taught because it's clearly the perspective of the early church. He says, let's continue. <laughs> it's clearly the perspective of, you read, you can't objectively read the epistles and not see this kind of approach to suffering. You cannot. It's unless you, in your heart, you, and yesterday, for instance, I was, I was meditating in the night and I'm like, how do people, because at the end of this is literally English comprehension. This is letters and words and sentences. How do people read Paul? And still come up with the prosperity gospel. It, it it scared me. And it just it just showed that people will believe what they want to believe, regardless of what they read. They would always find a way to interpret it in the context of their what they want to be true. And yeah, for some of you, maybe people even listening to this now or in the recording, you might not, you might believe in the righteousness of God through faith and through righteousness by faith through grace, rather. But even in things like suffering, have you, have you, have you humbled yourself to verses like James one, to Romans five, where you are able to say, in the face of persecution, I will rejoice because I know it is it is making me better, because I know that the same way, like the Hebrew author says, a father is training his child through persecution, God is making me better. God is making me stronger. God is, is strengthening my faith. And again, I said, it doesn't mean that God is the one sending persecution. God was not the one that put evil in the heart of men to kill Jesus, right? Again, the idea is that he is the father of lights. In him is no, var no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God doesn't send bad things. That's why Paul would say a messenger from Satan was given. But at the end of the day, in his sovereign wisdom, he does permit his children to go through tests. Why? Because the good is worth it. What it does to us is worth it. And in that sense, he becomes a father who is training his child. Does that make sense? That's why he says, let me just read, since we have like five minutes, I'll just read on on this topic of um, chastening so that we see the idea. It's that same idea that Verse, verse 7, it says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? It says, But if you are without chastening, of which all of you have become partakers, meaning that, yes, all of you are being chastened. It says, But if you, if you expect to live a life where you are never being trained to become a better Christian, it says you are illegitimate and not sons. I think some translations say you are a bastard. <laughs> Uh, let me see. Uh, okay, I don't know. But you, 
you are illegitimate, and you are not truly his sons. It says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? It is for they, they chastened us in a way that seemed best to them. It is but he. Imagine if your parents, they think they know what is good for you. And because of that, they are willing to, to, to discipline and to train. Remember I told you, the idea is actually more of training. It says, but he, he does it for our profit. How much more God? Again, it's the idea of Job, right? Trust in the sovereign wisdom of God for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. It is now no chastening seems joyful for the present, for it's painful. It is nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's the same thing in Romans, the same thing in James, the same thing in Peter, the same thing we see in the life of the apostles. So he says, therefore strengthen. So on that note, I'll end. I'll continue from verse 5 again next week cj i'm sure you are surprised you came we started from verse 1 we're still on verse 5 after an hour 30 minutes but i want you guys to meditate on this and i want you guys to if possible listen to this again um think about it think about what those verses contain as to how as believers our perspective to suffering is that more so that we trust in the wisdom of God and that we, we are able to see that through this, this trial, I'm getting stronger. Through this trial, I'm getting better. And that's why James said, if any of you lack wisdom, because it, indeed it takes wisdom or it takes a divine perspective enabled by the Spirit of God to be able to see the good in bad. But that's why you're a child of God. That's why the scriptures are written. And again, like I said, there is the discernment to know. So for instance, the church will still pray for Peter. I'm not saying that, God forbid now, if all of a sudden there's a rule that Christians are no longer allowed to publicly worship, I won't, I won't pray that um, God I mean, intervene. It doesn't mean I won't pray for the Christians in Afghanistan who are currently going through everything we've just talked about. Right? The church did pray. Paul said it, pray for those in authority that we may lead peaceable lives. So we are to pray. I'm not saying you have a suicidal mindset. I say, ah, any bad that was to happen, let it come to me. It's only making me better. I'm like, Gary, I will rise. No, I'm not saying you become suicidal. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens, God is allowing it because it's going to make you better. No, I'm simply saying that discernment is needed. And there are some situations, like we've seen, even in Peter's life, in Paul's life, in the Hebrews 11 story, where for some, it's not going to be deliverance as usual. It would be, I want you to go through this. Just like Paul, the messenger from Satan, the thorn in the flesh. God's response three times was what? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So we are praying for the Afghan believer. But what I'm saying is that in some cases, the answer would be a deliverance. But in some cases, in God's wisdom, the answer is what? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And it takes humility and it takes a perspective of scripture to be able to be comfortable and to rejoice in that reality. Unfortunately, no, 
let me not end it on a bad note so yes i would so please and please keep that in mind like i said it's sad it's not really the case in most mainstream christianity but this is clearly the word of god it's clearly the word of god again we are able to find the strength to endure why because we see Jesus looking on, we've, con- we've carefully considered the outcome of his life. We see that indeed, indeed, it was worth it. It was worth it. Amen. Amen and amen. Any questions? I hope everything I've said today is clear. <laughs> Any questions? Someone has a question. Okay, go ahead, Ayo. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. So the idea there is the same way. So let's go back to the analogy. One of the reasons that makes it very easy, a lot of people start to think that, oh, God is punishing you or something like that, is because they think chastening means punishment. Or they think it's not necessarily punishment. Discipline isn't always punishment, right? Um, the idea there is that the goal is to make you better. That's the first emphasis. And because of that, if the emphasis is there is something lacking, that by going through this process, I would get it. That's the same idea. If you were perfect already, there will be no need to suffer because there's nothing that it will teach you. Do you get what I'm trying to say? The mere fact that God allows us to go through, it's the same way James said, let patience have its work, that you may be perfect, right? That you may be mature. The idea there is that as believers, we're not perfect. Of course, we're not perfect. And there's a lot to learn, even experientially, about what it means to trust God, what it means to stand strong, what it means to hold fast to faith. And in God's sovereign wisdom, there are times where allowing us to go through persecution is the best way to, to, to grow in that area. If that makes sense. And so the analogy there is still that it's still... So the same way there is a father who is disciplining his child. There is a God who in his sovereign wisdom is is permitting, if you want to use that word, to us to go through persecution. So there's still that analogy there. But the, the, the focus is that at the end of the day, the goal is that it makes us better. It makes us better. And so we are to have the same mindset. Of course, there's no there's no time my, my parents ever flogged me like, yes, 
it's because they love me. It's because I did something wrong. It's because it's to make me better. <laughs> Impossible. I'm angry. <laughs> I'm like, what? There's never in my life have I ever thought like that. And it's the same way. Sometimes as Christians, we could be immature like kids and think, what is all this? Don't I love the Lord? Am I not faithful? Why am I going through this? Why am I going through that? And that's why James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. But the goal, like you said, Ayo, is to let every believer realize that we can learn to read. We could, we could see through the big boy mindset, the same way your parents would say, one day you would understand. And now that we are in our 20s, some many people listening to this, at least, were starting to understand. Even though, yes, it was to the best of their knowledge, which that's why I love this verse. So I love this couple of verses so much because it's so relatable. It was to the best of it was to the best of their knowledge, but in God, God is absolutely right, and we can trust that He knows what He is doing. And one day, in quote, we would understand. <laughs> one day, we would understand. CJ. <clears throat> So for th- thanks for asking. That's a very good question. Um, for the sake of people on the recording, CJ asked that does it mean God is allowing? Um, or some people think that that means, and that's why I talk. I started by talking, and yes, I did answer this before you came, so you could listen to it um, <clears throat> again from the top to to get that. And I did make it clear that the analogy only goes as far as training and making us better. It doesn't mean God is actively the one saying this and this and this. No, God is not actively bringing persecution. Because again, I said, God doesn't, there's no evil in God. He can't give what he doesn't have, right? But this goes into a very touchy theological topic that time would not permit me to explain. Maybe, maybe. If you remind me, I might, I might go on it. I might touch on it next week, just in slightly more depth because it can be an entire teaching. But the idea in which, because God is sovereign, right? Because God, in His sovereignty, knows what is good and what is not. You would see cases where even His permission of something is deemed His act, His action. Let me explain. So. Um, you would see things like God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's that's the same thing. Of in a, from a literal standpoint, God did not make Pharaoh reject him. That would be him literally imposing his Pharaoh. Then, if we if we submit to that, then we can say that God can make everyone believe him. God can make everyone any anyone reject him and all of that. So, and so anyone that ends up in hell is God's fault. And that's not true, right? However. God, God, uh, in a bid to to show His glory, and this Romans nine. That's why I'm scared. I don't want to start this because there won't be enough time to finish. But pretty much when it says God had in Pharaoh's heart, how did God had in Pharaoh's heart? 
For instance, if you choose that you like darkness and I shine the light at you, am I doing a bad thing? Question. If you love darkness and I shine the light and I'm like, I open the window blinds, am I doing a bad thing? Question, question, question. I want to see thoughts in comments. Am I doing a bad thing? Let, like, let's, let's assume light is good and darkness is bad, right? If you like darkness and I turn on the window and I'm like, no, come into the light. I'm not necessarily doing a bad thing. But what would be your response if I turn on the window blind? You would hide, you, you would try to find another, like you would go deeper into darkness. So for instance, let's say I'm in a bedroom. I have a roommate. He likes darkness, complete darkness. And it's 7 a.m. and I open the windows. What will he do? He will cover himself with the blanket so that he's shrouded in even more darkness. Or so we'll go into the closet and shut the door. Do you see? So they are going deeper. It's the same idea. And so in, how did God in quotes harden Pharaoh's heart? He just kept showing him more of himself. That I am God. Let my people go. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But with every further revelation of God, Pharaoh in a bit to reject it, will go deeper into darkness. So that, do you see that? So what God was actively doing was simply revealing more of himself. But Pharaoh, of his free will, chose to reject it and kept sliding deeper and deeper into reject, willful rejection of the revelation of God. And so his heart kept getting harder and harder. And the problem with that is with every hardening process, it takes even greater revelation to reach you. But if you are still in that same, same frame of mind, you will just keep getting worse and worse. Ultimately, call, um, leading to reprobacy and all of that, which again, like I said, I'm not, I don't want to get into that yet because there's no time. But CJ, to go directly into your question, it's the same idea. Because God is sovereign, God can choose. And like I, I, I did talk about it, he chose to deliver Peter. He chose to deliver Paul and Silas at that point in time. Do you get that? And so you, it's almost as though anytime God doesn't actively step in, in his sovereign wisdom, he has chosen to let it go, let it happen. Do you get what I'm saying? And that's why sometimes some people say it's God, but it's not actively the same permissive will or all those funny, funny things. I don't want to talk on that yet, but it's not as though God is actively bringing persecution. All God is simply doing is that, yes, there is evil in the world. And according to his sovereign wisdom, he allows for some expression of evil. Why? Because he knows that good would ultimately win. It's the same way for the crucifixion of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, he literally said he scourged his son or he killed his son or any, any one of that, right? He gave, the idea of he gave his only begotten son is that he gave him for death. But God didn't actively kill or actually kill Jesus. He only handed him to the evil in the world. Evil did his job and God allowed it. Why did God allow it? Because through that little triumph, that small moment when hell thought it had won, God was able to bring out the greatest good we've ever seen, eternal life through Christ. And that's the idea, that God in his sovereign wisdom would sometimes pass over or in quotes, permit the expression of evil because God knows that it is going to work a greater weight of good. There are actually scriptures on all of this. So that's that's um, that's the idea. So it's not this is not a case of God, God didn't know, no, no, no. 
All right. All right. So I hope that that answers your question. All right. Good question. Um, so thank you, everyone. We're slightly above time, but I, I hope we're blessed and we learned something today. I would uh, continue from uh, verse 5 next week, and hopefully I finally finish Romans uh, Hebrews 12. I don't think I'm going to finish 13 next week. <laughs> but let's see. Let's see. Any What God cannot do does not exist. But thank you all for coming. Uh, any final questions before we pray? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this teaching, this time in your word. Thank you for all we learned. Thank you for all we learned. I pray that we're able to keep this truth in our hearts and meditate and in humility submit ourselves to your wisdom. I pray that there is clarity for everyone who listens to this and we are able to hold true to what your word says and ultimately build our lives, our emotions, our responses, and our understanding of events based on the, the wisdom found in your word. Lord, the same way you said in James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. I pray for wisdom for every single one of us to be able to see things through your eyes and to be able to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.